name's Mark Mullery. I serve as one of the elders here. And whether you're in person or watching online, I want to greet you. Thanks for joining us. We're in a series in the Gospel of Mark called Follow Me. And this morning we're in chapter 3. I want to just mention, we mentioned this earlier on, but um, if you're looking for a study companion to help you get a little more out of the, your reading of the Gospel of Mark, we have in the bookstore uh, this uh, sort of commentary-like book called uh, Mark for You. It's not a verse-by-verse commentary, but it's a section-by-section commentary, and I'm actually going to quote from it in a moment. I found it very helpful, so you might check that out. We are in Mark chapter 3, and um, McCree Pratt is going to read the passage for us this morning. So please open in your Bibles to Mark 3 and verse 20. And please keep your Bibles open throughout the, throughout the sermon because we'll refer back to that. So thanks, McCree. Mark 3, 20 through 35. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. And the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemes they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, he has an unclean spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. O God, our Father, the gospel of Jesus Christ is good news. I pray that you would make it good news to each one of us wherever we are this morning. I pray that you would open our eyes that we might see the glory of Jesus Christ. I pray that you would enable us to hear your call to follow him and that then you would send us into the world as his ambassadors, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus, if you've been following through the sermons through this series is just an amazing person. He's a great teacher. He's compassionate. He's a healer. He's setting people free from demons. And you might think that anybody that could just get near to him would be thrilled to be around him. Don't you think? Like, wouldn't it be cool to be close to Jesus, to be near to him? And you might assume that if you could get close enough to him, you'd, you'd, everybody that could would want to fall down and worship him and follow him and so on. But that's actually not the case. 
What we see in this passage, what Mark the Gospel writer is highlighting for us here, is that being near to Jesus by itself isn't enough. Something more is required. Jason Meyer in this Mark for You book that I mentioned a moment ago um, put it this way, and I'm grateful to Stephanie for uh, mentioning this during our sermon prep meeting earlier this week. The quote is this, proximity to Jesus is not enough. Allegiance to Jesus is what matters. Proximity to Jesus, nearness to Jesus by itself isn't enough. Something else is required. Nearness to Jesus doesn't necessarily result in worshiping Jesus. And we can prove that because who could be closer to Jesus than his family? Brothers who've grown up with him, his mom who's obviously been, been his mom, people who have known him for decades, they, they come at the beginning of this passage thinking that he's lost his mind, that he's crazy. And you might think that religious leaders who've been waiting, praying for, longing for the Messiah, now that the Messiah is standing there in front of him, of, in front of them, you might think that they would be ready to sign up to follow him, but instead here they're accusing him of being in league with the devil. You see, with Jesus, neutrality is impossible. But I want to ask you, why is it that people respond so differently to Jesus? Why is that? You know, I think one of the reasons is that Jesus, as he brings his kingdom, his kingdom, his person, his teaching requires new thinking about basic building blocks of life, family, religion, nation, patriotism, things like that. So the question for each one of us here this morning as God's word is open in front of us, as the Holy Spirit is present in this dwelling that the Spirit is building, the question for us is, are we willing for Jesus Christ to probe and challenge us in the basics of life, the most important places of life? See, I love how Christianity speaks to the most important issues of life. Have you noticed that? It doesn't shy away from the hard places. It speaks to things like, well, family, for example, it's going to come into view this morning. So how do you think about family? What's your experience with family? For some, just the mention of family is painful. Family can be a mess for some. People may be trying to break free from family or escape in some way from family. Some are trying to, to uh, redefine the whole concept of family, to make a new and improved idea. For others, family is everything. Blood is thicker than water. And so you have family systems that are, that are all connected in, in business and in, in very close living situations. And, and one of the central ideas can be don't shame the family. Always honor the family. For others, family may be more just of a disappointment. There are probably some sitting here this morning and you're acutely aware of loneliness, disappointment, whether it comes to marriage or children or extended family. Now, the occasion of Jesus' family resisting his ministry provides an opportunity for 
Jesus to teach us some really important basics about family. It gives us a window into how what matters most isn't necessarily just being near to Jesus through family, but what matters is allegiance and loyalty. That gets to the heart. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to take this passage in four sections. And this is the first of what people call a Mark sandwich. Kind of weird being Mark, talking about Mark this way. But a Mark sandwich is where Mark, the gospel writer, not me, starts a story and then he interrupts it with something else and then he finishes the story. Okay, so what happens in this passage is he starts the story by talking about how Jesus' family comes to, to seize him, saying he's out of his mind. Then, he, then, then Mark sort of interrupts that story and tells us something else that's, that's complementary. And it's about how, in this case, the scribes came and, and opposed Jesus. And then he closes with the last section, verses 31 to 35, when, when he, brings, he com- sort of completes the sandwich. It's the other slice of bread. And he highlights the outcome with Jesus' family. In fact, I want to just read those verses with you here. Look at verse 31, please. And his mother and his brothers came standing outside. They sent to Jesus and called to him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. So you get family, you get these scribes, and then you get family. So if you think about the layout, we've got responses to Jesus and responses from Jesus. Responses to Jesus from his family, responses to Jesus from the scribes, Jesus responds to the scribes, Jesus responds to his family. So there's a neat ordering to this that Mark, the gospel writer, has provided. So let's, let's start with seeing how Jesus is resisted by his family. Look back in verse 20. It says, Jesus went home and the crowd gathered again. Now, what's, what's this home? Well, it's not his home in Nazareth. It's probably back to Capernaum, probably back to Peter and Andrew's home. And it's another humongous crowd. And there's so much activity that there isn't even time to eat. And so it says in verse 21, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying he's out of his mind. Now, we saw back in chapter 1 that in this home in Capernaum, Jesus had gone there after being in the synagogue, Peter and Andrew's home, and Peter's mother-in-law was sick. Jesus healed her. And then when the sun went down, remember, all these people came from the town. And so there was this humongous healing service. All these people came. They were delivered from demons. They were healed. And then later, there was a second gathering in the home where it was so crowded that these guys had a friend they, they wanted Jesus to pray for. They couldn't get him in the house. So they cut that skylight in the roof and dropped him down through there. Well, they're back in the house with the skylight, okay? The new uh, uh, unapproved skylight. So that, that's where they are. And Jesus's family hears that he's there. Nazareth isn't that far away. They've probably, word has spread. He's back in town. And they come, and it says they sought to seize him. Now, that word seize is a strong word. In Matthew 9, it says that Herod, King Herod, seized John the Baptist when he arrested him and then eventually killed him. 
In Acts 2, it says Jesus couldn't be seized by death. It's to lay hold of someone. It's to lay claim to someone. It's to direct someone's path. And so his family is trying to lay claim to him. And they say what? He's out of his mind. Okay, so that's how they're interpreting what's happening. And if you slow down and try to think about it, imagine, like, what would it be like to be one of those family members? And maybe you can kind of understand how it might sort of make sense to say, hey, look, Jesus, okay, that was, that was fine for a while, but, like, things are getting out of hand. <clears throat> you've had your fling. <clears throat> you've called some disciples. You've done some miracles. That's all great. But it's really time to come home now. There's a carpentry business to run. Remember, you're the oldest son. You got mom to take care of and, and got some providing to do for the rest of us. And Jesus, by the way, family first, that's in the Bible. Right? You, you can kind of get it. We're like, they, they don't understand what's happening. And Jesus is about to challenge some basic assumptions about family. But before we get there, we get Jesus not only resisted by his family, then we get him opposed by religious leaders. Look at verse 22. <clears throat> and the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, he, Jesus, is possessed by Beelzebul, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. And then down to verse 30. See what it says? For they had said, the scribes, he has an unclean spirit. So who are these guys, these scribes? Well, the scribes in Israel were the professional religious scholars. They made their living by studying and, and explaining the scriptures. And we saw them back in chapter 2. They were seating, sitting, they were seated in that house where that hole got cut in the roof. They, they were there and they were the ones who were saying internally, they didn't know Jesus could read their minds, but they were, they were saying he's blaspheming when Jesus forgave that guy's sins. And so now <clears throat> it seems that what's happened is the local scribes have reached out to the big hitters, the heavy hitters from Jerusalem and said, look, we've got a problem and it's not going away. And so we need you guys to come and, and weigh in here. And what they say to Jesus is fascinating because they can't disagree that he's, he's, he's doing something supernatural. He is casting out demons. People are being healed. They, they can't argue with that. But how to explain it? It's just like Jesus' family. They've all got the same data. How do you explain what's happening here? How do you explain what Jesus is doing here? And the scribes, they're about to have their assumptions about religion challenged. I mean, think about it again. Jesus hasn't been trained by anybody reputable. He's, he's not the, the, the disciple of a famous rabbi. He doesn't have a diploma from a, from a famous seminary hanging on, on, on the wall in his house. He lives and preaches not in Jerusalem, not where the temple is, not where all the religious leaders are. He's in this backwater area of Galilee and he's breaking all their rules. So the allegation is, well, we know what's happening. He's doing this by black magic. He's made a deal with the devil. He's possessed by a demon. It's by Beelzebul that he's doing these things. Beelzebul is the name of one of the Canaanite gods you can read about in the Old Testament. But it seems that that name became synonymous for Satan, Satan being God's malicious enemy. 
the one who tempted Adam and Eve in the garden and the one who opposes God at every turn until he's finally destroyed in the end. So again, we want to just simply observe. These were people from Jesus's nation. These were people of the same religion. And these were people who were religious leaders. And proximity to Jesus isn't enough. We see two different groups of people who have access to him, who are in some way or another proximity or nearness to him, and they end up resisting him and opposing him. And again, we want to ask that question, why is that? I want to encourage you to hold on to that question. We'll come back to it. Now, having had people respond to Jesus, we're going to get Jesus responding back. And he begins first by responding to these religious leaders. If you look at verse 23, Jesus hears what's going on. He, he understands these allegations that are, that are being made, and he doesn't dodge them. He doesn't run away from them. He says, he calls those leaders to himself. And, and he says, verse 23, call them to him and, and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. So do you see what he's doing here? He's not dodging the issue. He's not deflecting or distracting. He is dealing with it head on through appealing to logic and reason. He says simply, look, a house divided against itself cannot stand. Abraham Lincoln understood that and quoted this verse directly, it would appear, in a speech that he gave in 1858 when he was talking about the United States. And he said, the United States can't stand as a divided nation, half slave and half free, because a house divided against itself cannot stand. Jesus is just arguing from common sense. He's saying, guys, stop and think about what you're saying. What you're saying doesn't make sense. If Satan is casting out Satan, Satan's destroying himself. That doesn't make sense. Jesus is saying a house divided can't stand, a, 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 a kingdom divided can't stand, and Satan divided can't stand. So just observe, Christianity never fears logic and facts and reason. We have a most reasonable faith. That's part of what makes it so wonderfully satisfying. He then moves on to provide an explanation. Look at verse 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. Now, if you're brand new to the Bible, you might be shocked at what you just heard Jesus say. Because you know what he's doing here? He's giving instructions on how to do a home invasion. Like, stop and think about it. If you're familiar with this, this is one of those hermeneutics moments. Hermeneutics is how you interpret the Bible. This is one of those times where if, you're, if you've been around the Bible for a while and Christianity for a while, you have this, this override that goes on. You know how to interpret this. But Jesus is actually explaining how to rob a house. That's what he's doing. Why is he doing that? He's doing that because this is a parable. This is an illustration. And Jesus often uses illustrations of behaviors that he wouldn't necessarily endorse in order to explain something that the, the hearers don't understand. He's using something known to explain something unknown. 
It's basic teaching technique, illustrations, parables. So he's saying, look, if you want to rob the house of a guy who's really strong, you can't just walk in there, can you? You got to shut down the security system. You got to lock up the dogs. You got to tie the guy up. And then you can go get the jewelry or the electronics or whatever it is that, that you're after. Now, that's the story. That's illustrating something else. What's the something else? Well, he tells us that Jesus, in verse 27, he says, if you're going to enter a strong man's house, plunder his goods, you must first bind the strong man. Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Now, who's doing the plundering here? Sunday school answer? Jesus. Right. Jesus is doing the plundering. Jesus is explaining to us his ministry through the illustration of breaking into somebody's house and plundering that person's goods. I want you to notice two things about this. First, Jesus, hear this, because we live in a scientific, naturalistic world. Jesus does not reject the reality of the supernatural. Jesus does not deny the existence of Satan. In fact, Jesus here defines his mission in terms of disarming Satan and plundering his house. Think about it. How do you account for evil in the world? How do you explain the existence of evil in the world? Jesus doesn't say, you know, the devil... I'm going to talk to you guys a little bit about it now because you're kind of backward and uneducated and pre-industrial, but more enlightened people will get a better answer later. He doesn't say that. He's pointing to Satan as the source of misery and sickness and oppression and captivity and sin and death. And he's explaining that his job here is to bind that strong man in order to plunder his house, to plunder what from his house? You and me and people. So I want you to see that Jesus is not rejecting the reality of the supernatural nor denying the existence of Satan. Second, I want you to observe that Jesus is explaining his work in terms of setting people free from captivity. Setting people free from a strong man who was holding them back. In this sense, the scribes are partially right. He's saying, look, I am casting out demons, but not by the power of Satan. It's by the power of the Spirit of God. Remember back in chapter 1, when Jesus is baptized, uh, the Spirit of God descends on him like a dove. That's the empowering for the ministry that Jesus is now involved in. That empowering comes from the Spirit of God. And this is exactly what was prophesied. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord, hear that. The spirit of the Lord is upon me to do what? To proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. Somebody's going to come and set captives free. Isaiah 49, can the prey be taken from the mighty or the captives of a tyrant be rescued? For thus says the Lord, even the captives of the mighty shall be taken, 
And the prey of the tyrant shall be rescued, for I will contend with those who contend with you, and I will save your children. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord, your Savior, and your Redeemer, the, hear it, mighty one of Jacob. If you are held captive in a tyrant's house, you need a mighty one to come and deliver. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ has come to do. He's casting out demons. He's touching a leper, healing him from the leprosy. He's healing all kinds of people. He's pronouncing forgiveness. He's calling people into his kingdom through repentance and faith. He's calling people out of captivity into freedom. And he alone has the power to make this possible. Because there's a strong man and there's a strongest man. And Jesus comes as the strongest man. Remember what, back in chapter 1, John says, John the Baptist says, after me is coming one who is mightier than me, stronger than me. That mighty one of Jacob has come. Jesus Christ, hear this. Who is mighty in your life? Who is mighty in your world? Jesus is mightier than John the Baptist. Jesus is mightier than King Herod, who would imprison and kill John the Baptist. Jesus is mightier than the Roman Empire. It's gone. Jesus still lives. Jesus is mightier than sin, than disease, than oppression, than death. Jesus' mightiness will be displayed through suffering and weakness on a cross so that through that suffering and weakness and death, he might once and forever sever and destroy and defeat Satan and his power so that he might bind that mighty one so that the mightier one might bring eternal life to people like us. You know what I love about the gospel? There, there will never be enough ways to explain it. Here's a way to explain the gospel. Have you ever explained the gospel in this way? Here's the gospel. I was a captive to Satan's power. All who sin are enslaved to sin. I was a captive to the prince of the air, to the God of this world. But a mightier one came and bound him and called me out and through repentance and faith, I was set free. And those whom he sets free are free indeed. That's one way to explain the gospel right here in front of us. And this wonderful explanation that Jesus provides of his mighty power to save comes with both a spectacular promise and a scary warning. Look at verse 28. And his mother, excuse me, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. Pause. Are there sins that can't be forgiven? 
All sins will be forgiven. Are there blasphemies that can't be forgiven? I want you to hear the words of Jesus. He is mighty to forgive sin. Hear this, O saints. Hear this, O sinners. Jesus is mighty to forgive liars and thieves, the sexually immoral, the greedy, enslavers, perjurers, people who practice homosexuality, drunkards, blasphemers, and the list goes on and on and on. Paul the Apostle says it this way, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer. Do you hear that? persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. He got brought out of a house of slavery by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. He was forgiven so the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Hear this. Slow down. Listen. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. There is nobody here beyond the reach of that forgiveness. No one. Hear this. He came into the world to save sinners. What hope and comfort. And then this scary verse 29, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin, for they had said he has an unclean spirit. This is one of the most difficult verses in the New Testament, and it's often a terror to the conscience of sensitive Christians. Let me try to relieve, relieve those consciences. If you wonder, have I done this? Have I committed that unpardonable, unforgivable sin? Observe two things. First, he gives no definition precisely for what that is. But the context here is people who are attributing his work by the power of the Holy Spirit to being demonic work by the power of Satan. It would seem that this sin is the willful, conscious intentional rejection of Jesus accompanied by the slander that he's from the devil. If you wonder or worry that you've committed this sin, you have not. You haven't. Or you wouldn't be concerned. If you're worried that you might commit this sin, you haven't. Because this is a sin committed by those whose hearts are so hard They've hardened their hearts to such a degree that they don't want the good news ever to be brought into their lives. Paul was a blasphemer and a persecutor, but he wasn't beyond the reach of grace, and neither are you. It's still true here today. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a promise to you. Final point. Jesus responds to his family by revealing his true family. And so in verse 31, we're back at his house. Look at 
Verse 31, his mother and brothers came and standing outside they sent and called to him. So you can try to picture the scene. You're in this house, it's jammed. Nobody can get inside, doors are all, fire codes are all being broken. Nobody can get get in or out. And, and, And then there's people outside and Jesus's family comes outside and the word gets passed in to Jesus. Hey, Jesus, your family's here. I want you to hear what he says in verse 33. He answered them, who are my mother and my brothers? Can can you see what's happening here? Were you ever out maybe when you shouldn't be and dad called and said, it's time to come home or made a call like that? This is kind of that moment. This is Jesus' family saying, it's time to come home. And Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers? Who's my family? This is... This is shocking what's happening here. This is a family-driven, family-centric culture. It's not rife with the individuality that much of Western culture is here today. And Jesus says, here are my mother and brothers. Those who do the will of God, they are my brother and sister and mother. This is a radical moment in the kingdom of God. What matters isn't proximity, but allegiance. Insiders are becoming outsiders, literally. Outsiders are becoming insiders. Why? Why? Why do people respond so differently to Jesus? Here's the line of division. Some are humbly willing to have Jesus challenge their assumptions about life, and others are not. Some are willing to let him come in and probe their hearts, their desires, their lives, and others are not. This is a radical call to discipleship. Hear this. Allegiance to Christ comes before allegiance to family. Can you hear that? Can you see that in the text? Remember, Jesus had called James and John to leave their father and family business in order to follow him. That's just not done in cultures like that. And I want to ask you this morning, have you heard that call? Have you heard that call to an allegiance to Jesus Christ that's even greater than your allegiance to your family? Have you responded to that call? The Ten Commandments are, as we taught a couple years ago, still in play. The Fifth Commandment, honor your father and mother, still in play. And we will find Jesus wonderfully honoring his mother in the end of the Gospel of John. As Jesus is hanging on a cross, he's asking John to take care of his mom. Jesus never fails to appropriately honor his father and mother and family. And it will be sweet to see at the end that two of Jesus' brothers write two of the books that are in our Bible. They don't always think he's crazy. Eventually they came around understanding he's the Lord, James and Jude. But Jesus understands that the first commandment 
you shall have no gods before me, precedes the fifth commandment. There's a priority. There's an order to these things. The call to love and serve and honor God always comes before the call to honor father and mother and family. Neither is optional, but there is a priority. The first commandment before the fifth commandment. And it's so easy to go wrong in these things, isn't it? I've seen people sacrifice family on the altar of ministry in the name of loving God, and that's not appropriate. Commands to husbands, to wives, to, to, to love one another, to parents, to, to serve children are still in play, and God doesn't get confused about that. I've seen family itself made into an idol. Some people just want, seems to want the, the best everything for their kids, all the advantages, make sure they're in the right schools, on the right travel teams, doing the right instruments, all so they can have the right whatever. And, if, and, if, and often then that comes with less church, less discipling, less of the kingdom. I've seen families assert claims on kids that go beyond scripture. Thou shalt honor your father and mother by producing grandchildren for us, living close by, choosing the career I pick for you or the spouse I pick for you. I want to ask, what would happen, think about this, what would have happened if Jesus had submitted to the claims of his family? When they said it's time to come home, what would have happened if he did? If he'd kept the fifth commandment, what would have happened? No atonement, no cross, no gospel. We must love and honor and serve our families, but we must always do that under the greater allegiance to God. Allegiance to him comes first. Let us encourage and teach our children this. Let us cultivate this in generations to come. Here are my mother and brother and sisters. Try to picture yourself in that house. And the word comes in, hey, your family's outside. They want you. And can you imagine him making eye contact with you and saying, mother, brother, sisters, can you imagine that moment? Do you know he's still saying that? That moment is here. Sometimes people think they're not going to fit in Christianity because they're from the wrong family or the family won't approve, from the wrong religion, from the wrong nation. But all Jesus is asking for is an allegiance to him doesn't matter where you were born, what language you speak, how much education you have. I love that in this room, there are poor and wealthy, blue collar and white collar, morning people and night people, dog people and cat people, introverts and extroverts. I love that in this room, there are people born in Ghana and El Salvador and Iran and Taiwan and Bolivia and England and Fairfax County. Some say blood is thicker than water. My friend Sarah reminded me this week that in Christ, obedience is thicker than water. That's how we've come together. That's who we are. And that's what holds us together. So I ask you this morning, who is your family? Who's your family?
And isn't it sweet to hear Jesus say, those who are with me and just committed to doing my will, that's my family. Hear the Spirit's ministering those words to you this morning. What do we learn about Jesus from this passage? Well, encountering him can be challenging, can it? He challenges our assumptions about life, about family, about religion. And isn't it thrilling to see that Jesus isn't just another strong man. He's the strongest man. He's the Lord of family. And he's gathering a new family. He's bringing us in from the wilderness of this world and taking us home to the promised land where Nancy Whitaker transitioned last night. And Lord willing, the rest of us will make it at the right time and on the right day. Let's transition to having the Lord's Supper. 1 Corinthians 10, 